The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. The following is a presentation of the Speed Sport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his views in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's fast car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. From the Speed Sport Podcast Studios, powered by My Race Pass, here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in, pull those belts tight. We'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. We're brought to you today by Mark Ficken Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard. The team at Mark Ficken Ford Lincoln works hard every day to be a community partner in supporting their customers, local businesses, as well as being involved in local charities programs. Visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com today for your next vehicle selection, service appointments, or collision need. Today's guest, Mike, a former motorsports executive and now public speaker. He's best known as the former president of Texas Motor Speedway. He's a major auto racing promoter and businessman, particularly in stock car and IndyCar racing. He's a protege of NASCAR promoter Humpy Wheeler, friend of the show. 
having served as VP Public Relations at Charlotte Motor Speedway 1989 to 1995 before being promoted to run Texas. His campaigns and promotions have sometimes been viewed as controversial in the NASCAR landscape. Being a protege of Humpy Wheeler, imagine that. He was instrumental in the One Hot Night promotion. You remember that? The 1992 Winston at Charlotte Motor Speedway. He once trained a monkey to sell souvenirs. Eddie Gossage joins us on the podcast. <laughs> Eddie, say hi to Mike Wallace. Hey, Mike Wallace. How are you? I'm wonderful. What a lead into that. Trained a monkey. Welcome to Mike Wallace. There was a picture of it and everything. <laughs> it, it's part of my resume. I, uh, I can't deny that part. So, uh, yeah, I think if you look at uh, there's actually a picture of me and Mikey the monkey, Mike. Uh, was it really Mikey the monkey? It was really Mikey the monkey, and there's a picture of me and him. He's on my shoulder uh, during a press conference at, uh, on a Wikipedia page about me. So, Well, that's uh, where yeah. I get all my information, Eddie. You know, I plagiarized your intro directly from Wikipedia, yeah. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay. okay. <laughs> Yeah. Is, is that good? I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's all good information. So I always tell everybody if it's wrong, blame Wikipedia. So, Eddie, oh, yeah. Yeah. Eddie, the cool part about our show, I think it is, it's based around motorsports primarily. But we have, we've had a variety of people from, uh, you know, musicians to comic actors to whatever on. And the design of the show is to take people back into your career. Uh, we call it, who were you before who you are? Oh, look at there. I, he just showed. I got I Mikey the up monkey up on my shoulder. That's... Well, there you go. thought I was kidding. Mikey was pretty cute. <laughs> he, was, he was great. He was awesome. Yeah. So what we, But what we're trying to do is because, you know, the race world, everybody involved in motorsports knows Eddie Gossage. I mean, you're just, you, you know, you're infamous in a, in, from a presidential standpoint at a racetrack to a promoter to just being an overall good guy and, being out there on that Kyle Petty charity ride every year, promoting the good causes. But we like to have you, if you will, take us back, help you, let us tell your story, but through your, your voice. And um, so if, if you take us back to where we know you ended up in motorsports as a racetrack president promoter, but what did you do early in the day? Take us back to the first job you think you had and go from there and we'll, we'll talk and BS all the way through. You know, I, I gotta be honest, the fact that I wound up in, in motorsports and, and played the role I did in, in you know, this 150,000 seat stadium that became Texas Motor Speedway and, and all that is so far fetched. You know, I, I tell people, you can't get there from here, you know, that kind of thing, because it's just such a long um, story. But I, I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee and uh middle of uh, three boys and uh I, I discovered auto racing live auto racing when i uh, was 16 uh, because i could drive myself and i went to a saturday night short track race there at the nashville fairground speedway which is you know great famous just one of the greatest speedways going and i could not believe my eyes i kept waiting for the police to come in and, and bust everybody for being there you know, cars wrecking, cars on fire, smoke everywhere, guys jumping out of cars and swinging at each other. And, and I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen, but I was convinced all of us, whatever several thousand were in the stands, we were all going to jail that night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because, because I just couldn't believe you could actually do this legally. 
and it turns out you can. <laughs> so I was back every Saturday night at National Fairground Speedway as a, as a fan, enjoying myself and, and falling in love with auto racing. You know, and, and then, as I say, oddly enough, uh, I was in, went on to college, uh, studied communications. I wanted to be, truthfully, I wanted to be the PR guy for my NFL team, one of the team I adopted, the Green Bay Packers. But that, uh, that was a long ways away, and it's really tough to break into that club. And uh, I had sent my resume to Nashville Speedway, and uh, as I'm coming out of college, and oddly enough, they needed a PR guy, and they hired me, and uh, I accepted the $9,000 a year salary they, they were offering. They were overpaying oh. you at the time, is what you're saying. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> they, they probably were. I mean, arguably, you could, you could say that. So, uh, But it was Ed Clark, and, and many folks know Ed Clark. Oh, yeah. Uh, as president of Atlanta Motor Speedway, but at that time, Ed was the 24-year-old uh, general manager of Nashville Speedway and Bristol because that company owned both Nashville and Bristol. So here's Ed and Eddie. He's 24. I'm 20, I think, 20 or 21. And and we've got four cup races to run in uh, a weekly program every Saturday night at Nashville Speedway. Um, we had a secretary that worked at each place who also sold tickets, and we had a maintenance man at each place that cut the grass. And that was it. And so... Uh, Ed and I proceeded to lose about $600,000 for the uh, uh, guys that owned the track, which proves I was overpaid at $9,000 a year. <laughs> so, you know, if they had paid me, you know, I don't know, 12000 they would have lost $603,000 a year. So, you know, but that was 1980. And i got to tell you, it was just the greatest launch pad. I learned so much about how to, you know, about racing, about events, putting on events advertising, promoting, and all like that. And Ed and I, to this day, are, are just the closest of friends. Uh, Bruton often would call me and talk about my brother, and I knew that was Ed. Okay. And call Ed and talk to him about his brother. He, he knew he was talking about me. So, uh, but uh, but that was my start. And, and the truth is, is I took that job. I didn't have a car. You know, went through college, didn't have a car. I didn't have a, two nickels to rub together. And... Uh, there you are. So, see, and, 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 and that was great experience for you breaking into the business, learning how to run a nonprofit organization. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that wasn't the goal, certainly. <laughs> they, they didn't want it to be a nonprofit. They were hoping to make a few bucks. And, you know, and, and so I learned a lot. And, and by January, that was 1980 season. By January of 81, they decided that we needed somebody full time in Bristol. And so uh, Ed was there in Nashville, and they sent me to Bristol to run that racetrack. So here I am at 21, 22 years old, 20. Yeah, I would have been 22. And I'm the manager of a NASCAR Winston Cup Speedway. And, uh, you know, Bristol, of course, it was a whole different place than one culturally, but also in terms of acceptance for Bristol Motor Speedway compared to what at the time Nashville was receiving from the community there. So Bristol was actually, in my estimation, you didn't have a, a race every Saturday night. It was, a, it was an easier program. And so um, I got raised to uh, $13,200 a year and uh, thought I had uh, landed in, in on the good side of the fence. 
You were but, loaded you know. up with cash by that time, then, weren't you? <laughs> Thirteen, well, thirteen five, just killing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you, thirteen thousand two hundred is a lot more than nine thousand dollars in in Bristol. Is a lot more than nine thousand dollars in Nashville. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, but uh, but again, I I was working for the owner Gary Baker, and I just continued, you know, being a one man band, uh, learning everything you could possibly learn about running a racetrack and uh, it was it, you know from what i from that i mean i've done everything you can think of i have driven the pace car i've done the pa i've flagged races i've held driver's meetings i've cleaned toilets i've served hamburgers uh i've cut grass i've painted walls you know you, you name it and i've done it at a racetrack and it was a you know great experience those first four years to learn i spent three years in bristol before I left there, and and so it was a great time, a great experience, and and I was just a kid, you know. That was the amazing thing. So you know, with that resume, Jerry Gappins might be looking for some help at the Eldora Speedway. <laughs> you, you could probably lend him a hand out there. <laughs> well, you know, Jerry and Tony call me a lot, and and I I tell them, you know, try to answer their questions or to give them the benefit of my experience. Truth is, is Jerry's one of my guys. Uh, I brought him down from New Jersey, hired him at Charlotte Motor Speedway because I had known him in the years prior and I needed somebody. And I thought, where is Jerry Gappins these days? And he was working for a recruiting firm. Really? Firm. And, uh, yeah. So I, I hired Jerry and, and he is, you know, he's one of the greatest, if not the greatest promoter in racing today uh, at Eldora now. And uh, Tony loves him. Tony called me and said, I need somebody to, to run Eldora. You know, who, who you got in your back pocket? And I said, got you a guy. Call him up. Put them together, and next thing you know, he's he's down at Eldora. So we're really proud of the job he does. Yeah, but, he, he's doing a great job there, and it's really uh, admirable for you, Eddie, that people call you and ask for your advice. Like you just mentioned, Tony called you. Hey, who can I get? I got the guy for you. So, they, you know, the world respects you and, and everything you do. A quick little question that I, I was wondering myself, and you can tell me, is that, let's just say being a track president, how does that v differ from being a track promoter? Do you have to sometimes take your hat off and go, look, I got to go promote this race. I got to make it, I got to sell tickets and get rid of the president side, which is all I, I would assume is like the administrative side or whatever. What is the difference there? Well, there is a difference, and, and that's why it's a, it, you know, there is no job description for a track president slash promoter, uh, and there are very few, if any, promoters. I certainly don't think there's any old school promoters left in NASCAR, um, you know, doing it the old way, but uh, I always use them uh, because, the, the, you know, the president, he, all he deals with are budgets, uh, staff, you know, why is does Joe get paid more than me and Sam isn't working as hard as I am? And, you know, the typical things that you deal with in any business, um, that's what you're doing. You're running a business and uh, there's nothing glamorous about that. But I always viewed uh, the promoter as a, as a character I played, almost like an actor. You know, um, truthfully, I'm a very quiet guy. Uh, I love and collect interesting friends that are quick-witted and funny and 
some of them a little bit controversial and so forth. And, and um, I love them, and I, but I sit and I listen. I don't, I don't have a lot to it because I'm just a quiet guy. So I had to shift, believe it or not, into being a promoter. And the promoter sometimes did things that I wouldn't do and said things I wouldn't say and so forth. And, and kind of uh, was a much, well, certainly was a much louder or outgoing person than I really am. So, yeah, I view them as two separate things. And unfortunately, I don't think there's any promoters left in NASCAR anymore. And what do you, help me with what you mean by that? There's no promoters left in NASCAR. Is there? There nobody with the uh, enthusiasm, the drive, the new style, a, a new innovative look like you had and Humpy Wheeler had. And is well, you, I, I would. You know, Humpy certainly is a promoter, and and I tried to be a promoter. Uh, you know, and I would tell you that I probably shouldn't say there are none left. Doug Bowles in Indianapolis does a tremendous job promoting Indianapolis Motor Speedway and Indy 500 and the Brickyard and so forth. Um, but if I were president of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, I would be more like Doug and less like Eddie in Texas because Indianapolis is an established racetrack. Uh, it's the big one, you know, no matter how you cut it. Um, even with the the poor crowds that they've had, unfortunately, in recent years for the Brickyard, uh, it's still a crown jewel in NASCAR. And, and so Doug is a promoter handling Indianapolis exactly the way it ought to be handled. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have, he doesn't need to be having monkeys selling souvenir programs and things like that. Uh-oh. Still a Get cool on. idea, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I'll be honest with you. Promotions are fun things that you've done, and we'll talk about those as we we come back to break. But, man, they've been wonderful. Let's take a time out right here. We're talking to longtime motorsports executive Eddie Gossage. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Hi, it's Mike Wallace. You need to get behind the wheel of a vehicle that's built tough with Mark Ficken Ford Lincoln. Right now, you can get $500 off any new or used vehicle that we have in stock. That's right, $500 off any vehicle that's currently in stock. To take advantage of this deal, simply visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com slash Wallace. Don't miss out on this opportunity to save big on our entire inventory. Get $500 off of new and used cars, trucks, and SUVs at Mark Ficken Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard now. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com match just go to indeed.com match right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast indeed.com match terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed 
Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You are listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard. The team at Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln works hard every day to be a community partner in supporting their customers, local businesses, as well as being involved in local charities and programs. Visit FordLincolnSharda.com today for your next vehicle selection, service appointment, or collision need. On the line with us, Eddie Gossage. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Eddie, we got talking about the difference between a president and a promoter and who's a promoter today and kind of got off of a little bit but let's go back to bristol motor speedway you were you were the president promoter at that racetrack uh then where did things go from from bristol you know yeah well i left bristol after three seasons uh because i was offered a job with the miller brewing company in milwaukee uh heading up their motorsports program and um i did that for six years in 83 uh, you know, I joined in the fall, and uh, in November of 83, we won the Winston Cup Championship with Bobby Allison. And so, you know, it was great working with Bobby through the years, and, and Bobby Hillen later joined as a teammate. But uh, it also exposed me to pretty much every major form of motorsports in America. You know, you name it, uh, IndyCars with Danny Sullivan, we won the Indy 500 in 85. And, uh, you know, the uh, drag racing was guys like Ed the Ace McCulloch and Dick LaHaye and Larry Miner and so forth. Uh, we had Al Holbert and Derek Bell and Chip Robinson uh, driving for us in the Lowenbrow Porsche and IMSA, my favorite race car. Uh, Man, you had, some, you had some hitters in your cars, didn't you, back in that time? We, we had absolutely the very best, the very best. And we won lots of races, lots of championships, you know, and I'm, Fortunate, I've got a Daytona 500 winner's ring from Bobby uh, winning in 88. And then, uh, like I said, a, an Indy 500 winner's ring with Denny Sullivan in 85, the famous spin and win. And uh, so, it, you know, yeah, it was a great experience, exposed me to folks. You know, I met Roger Pinsky in 83 because that's who we sponsored at IndyCars. And, uh, you know, Roger has been a close friend and confidant for 40 years and uh you know i talked to him the other day he's he's funny he asks me questions about indianapolis but i don't know if you've ever texted with roger but roger is one of these guys that will end with a lot of emojis yeah not what i would expect from roger pinsky <laughs> so you know but, no but share so. share this about roger pinsky and i, I i'm going to share my my texting with roger for a man well, that is as busy as he is and got all this global enterprise going on, he will respond back to you instantly. Yeah, he, he's very quick to respond. Uh, when I announced that I was um, hanging it up, uh, that evening I get in the car, my wife and I were going to go to dinner because I've been doing media stuff all day long, and we are no further out to the end of the driveway, and the screen lights up you know, on my car and says, Roger Pinsky. And so, uh, you know, he was calling to go, what are you doing? You know, and we had a good talk and good visit, but he's just been a friend for 40 years. Great friends to have like that. He's a, he's a, he was great to our family. My brother, Rusty, of course, and he, yep. he revived my career. He allowed me to drive the 12 car for eight races one year. And, uh, I was able to prove that I could drive a race car again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's so many of us that have had some relationship or some, you know, it came in contact with Roger along the way, and Roger helps everybody. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but he's 
like I said, he's been a friend and confidant, and we've talked about things that you wouldn't imagine through the years. And you're right, he's always available, you know, and, and so uh, that's what amazes me, like you're saying, always available, and he's got all these companies and businesses and race teams and so forth. So uh, he, he's a good man. Yeah, well, that he is. So we'll go on from there. So you're at the Miller Brewing Company. You're winning, right? You're the PR director for, for Miller Brewing Company. And uh, in that position, what, what, is your, what is your responsibility? What's a person not know is the responsibility of, that you would have? Well, it, you know, as you said, head of PR for all the motorsports programs, then I had a guy that worked for me in each. And you know one of them, Tom Roberts. I hired TR uh, my first year there. And uh, Tom Roberts uh, was the at track Miller guy. Gosh, from 84 season to, I don't know, when did he, he was with uh, Rusty all his years at Penske. And yeah. uh, I know he worked with Kurt Busch his years at Penske. And anyway, he was there for a long, long, long time. But, uh, but yeah, I had the, the, it was my responsibility to support our sponsorship of those teams and have them, you know, uh, out in the media doing their thing in the program paid for before we ever rolled the car off the truck at whatever racetrack we were at. So, uh, we, we were always on the go and, you know, uh, for, for six years with that, I was at Miller, I was gone 40 weekends a year because if there wasn't a cup race, there was an IndyCar race, what an IndyCar race is a drag race or an IMSA race or hydroplane race or something. So I was gone all the time. Very diverse. So when you made the comment that you had those programs paid for, does that mean – explain that just a little bit. Does that mean you had deals with retailers or something like that that helped subsidize that or just that the budgets at Miller had it all covered already? Is that what no, what I, mean by, uh, what I mean by that is that the uh, driver had done an interview with uh, uh, newspapers, had done a satellite uh, TV interview with local television stations, et cetera. And there was a value attached to that dollars and cents value attached to those things. And the goal was, you know, we knew it costs X dollars a weekend to sponsor that car or that boat in case of the hydroplanes. And so we needed more, at least as much media coverage value to pay for the program before we ever rolled the car off the truck in the garage. Does that make sense? Oh, total, total sense. And I'm glad to hear it. I mean, that you made it work that way. So you basically, you made the program work off the racetrack and what was on the racetrack was a bonus then. Yeah, that's, that's really how we wanted it. You know, you know, on some weekends you hit the grand slam and some weekends you may hit a single, yeah. uh, you know, uh, so, you know, we just, uh, we're trying to do everything we could to have it, quote unquote, paid for before we rolled the car off the truck. And then, of course, over on the sales side, your local distributor is working with all the retailers. And back then, there were tons of point of sale material, you know, stand up uh, Bobby Allison's or Rusty Wallace's or what have you in the convenience store, in the grocery store, shelf danglers, counter cards. And these are all what we called them at Miller. But but the things you see in a grocery store, a convenience store, uh, a gas station, et cetera, that was selling Miller product. Well, Miller High Life for Bobby, Miller Genuine Draft with Rusty and, and so forth. 
Yeah, I was, it was always funny back in the day. Rusty would go, dude, I st I'm standing in every bar in the country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's got to stand up somewhere. I know. Here. I had one or two of those too. There was one at a grocery store near me too that it was actually, I guess it was had a sensor in it. And every time you walked by it, Rusty would it say did. something. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't have him. Now, you know, here's the thing about Rusty. And I love Rusty. I met him in '82. We were promoting uh, of an ASA race at Bristol, and Rusty was running ASA back then. And he came into town early in any way. But when Rusty gets excited, his voice goes up a couple of octaves. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and that stand-up, the, the, the voice was, it was it was extremely high. I can't remember what it said. Can you, Eddie? I, I don't remember. I just remember when I walked by one and it started talking, I about fell over laughing because it was excited, Rusty. Yeah, you know? I know. And it would be something like... Hey, make sure you grab a case of Miller Genuine Draft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, well, that was certainly creative, right? You got the, even got the audience walking through the grocery store inspired. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So as you're, you know, you're doing and being very successful in at the Miller Brewing Company, your race programs are very successful. Uh, somehow all the stars are lining up the way it sounds like during the time you were there. Now, what would have even remotely convinced you or got your attention to say somebody's wanting you to leave there and go to work for them somewhere else? What, what's, what was the next stage in, in your process at that point? Well, actually, there were, were several things. One was the travel. You know, that's just tough when you got a family. Uh, two was I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. And it's cold in Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Enough said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gets dark about 3.30. And, <laughs> and the, you know, it's north of Chicago, the Windy City. Well, it's windy because it's on Lake Michigan, as it is Milwaukee. And so you're just further north, and it's just as windy. It's just a little bit colder than Chicago. And so uh, anyway, uh, and then the opportunity, Ed Clark, uh, and I've been trying to get back together since we kind of split up in 81. And Ed was uh, kind of the number two guy for Humpy. Uh, and, and they kept bugging me. And Humpy kept sending me the temperature today <laughs> in Charlotte versus the temperature in Milwaukee. And so uh, I went to uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway as vice president of public relations. That allowed me to stay in the sport but not have to be on the road all the time. And it was warmer. Did, did you have to, you know, people ask us to talk about traveling all the time as a position at a racetrack. Did you have to do any traveling? Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, but it was far more manageable and palatable. And, of course, you know, as you know, Mike, you can get in your car and drive to Martinsville or Darlington or, or Bristol or whatever and be home that night. So, yeah, yeah, it was it was great in that regard. So, Eddie, this is a uh, Jeff ask all of our guests, everyone we've had on. This is kind <laughs> of a, a a fun story. And you had had a career at Miller Brewing Company, but you came to Charlotte. So, Jeff. We always ask our guests, when you go from point A to point B to further your career and you drive south, what kind of a car are you driving in? <laughs> well, I was driving a a, a I guess it was a Penske rental truck. So Penske rental. You know. there you go. Well, Mike Helton had a U-Haul going from Bristol to tell to Atlanta. I think it was. Yeah. Then he got yeah. flowing the rest of the way. I think Todd Modine is still number one on the list. He uh, he drove south in a Chevette. 
Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's commitment. That's yeah, commitment. Hey, I give him not, that. Not a Corvette. Uh, a yeah, shit she, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I caught the difference there. So the uh, difference is about uh, $50,000. Yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, I, I drove a, 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 you know, a rental truck. Uh, and, and oddly enough, my wife at the time, my kids stayed in Milwaukee to finish the school year. So the truth is all I had in the back of my rental truck was a suitcase and my motorcycle. Cause I wasn't going to go <laughs> South and leave my motorcycle up there. I wanted to be able to ride it. So I, you know, truth be known, I'm probably more of a motorcycle guy than a racing guy. I just didn't know how to make a living with motorcycle. <laughs> Yeah, I tell you, every every picture I see outside of the race world, you're on a motorcycle somewhere or sitting somewhere or, um, you know, we see, of course, a lot with the Kyle Petty ride throughout all the years you've been doing it. But uh, you're on a motorcycle a lot. Yeah, and it's just something that I started doing when I was a kid, and I just love them. And, you know, I just uh, probably about three, four years ago sold my dirt bike because when you fall off of them and you're going to fall off dirt bikes – it's harder when you're this age than when you were like 12. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but so you're, you're now you're at Charlotte motor speedway and yep. you're vice president of PR or whatever there. So where do we go yep. from that point? Well, you, you got to kind of stop along the way. First of all, the, the standards were high because you're working with Humpy and uh, Humpy Wheeler and so the things you come up with have to be top-notch kind of things. You know, they got to be the very best ideas on how to promote a race. And uh, sometimes, you know, uh, I heard Evil Knievel say one time, you know, I, I'm Bob Knievel. I created this Evil Knievel guy, and he kind of got away from me because I had to start jumping further and further and further, and that hurt. So, you know, <laughs> uh, as the PR guy there at Charlotte, you're trying to come up with better and better and better ideas. Eventually, that got a little bit away from me. And hey, that, hang on, Eddie, just one second. You had mentioned just now, you mentioned Evil Knievel. And is it true, I was told by somebody that knows you, back in, and this is back in the early days, did you and your brother or something put on some type of events that you thought oh, you yeah. were Evil Knievel? You, you were self-promoting Evil Knievel, which was like your brother at that time? Well, I'm not stupid. Um, <laughs> I, my little brother uh, would jump the bicycle, and I would promote. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'd make the kids in the neighborhood pay so much to see him jump further and further and further. Uh, never paid him a penny, but uh, kept all the money for myself. But... Uh, <laughs> You know that yeah that was that was really I didn't realize at the time that I was doing what I would grow up to do for a living, and uh, yeah. Let's take a time yeah, out here and come back and talk about some of the some of the things you guys accomplished at Charlotte Motor Speedway because there's some great <laughs> stuff in there. We're talking to Eddie Gossage. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace is teaming up with Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard to save you money on your vehicle purchase. Right now, you can get $500 off any new or used vehicle in stock. 
Hey, Mike, there's a landing page online with all the info you need to take advantage of this offer. FordLincolnCharlotte.com slash Wallace. You can view inventory and more. You can even listen to any of the 80-plus episodes of Fast Car to NASCAR while there. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard. The team at Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln works hard every day to be a community partner in supporting their customers, local businesses, as well as being involved in local charities and programs. Visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com today for your next vehicle selection, service appointment, or collision need. Longtime motorsports executive Eddie Gossage is joining us today. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, Eddie, I think we're now at the point of uh, you're at Charlotte Motor Speedway or you've been there. And uh, I think we just need to go through some of the fun things and creative things. You know, I got started <laughs> in the motorsports world down here, what I call down here in the Charlotte area. I moved down here in 1991. I had won the Winston Racing Series back in 1990. And uh, at that point, Charlotte Motor Speedway was the mega of everything. Just everything was Charlotte, right. you know. And at that time, too, they were about to get even bigger. I want to know whose idea was it to put lights at Charlotte Motor Speedway and be the first super speedway to run a race at night? Who's, <laughs> who came up with that idea? You know, I don't really know who, who specifically came up with the idea. It was generally... Uh, you know, back in 1980, uh, Ed and I ran three races under the lights, two in Nashville and one in Bristol, but those were both half-mile tracks. Uh, the, the challenge at Charlotte was how to t light up a mile-and-a-half-long track, make it good enough for television, because back then in the 80s, the early 80s, you didn't really you know, have television to, to concern yourself with. And then we also kind of made the challenge more difficult because we didn't want to put a bunch of telephone poles down the inside of the back straightaway and create this picket fence effect that you would see as you watch the car go down the back straightaway. So how could we have light coming from the inside but not up on telephone poles like you would see at any stadium in the world? And that's when we came up with this uh, system using mirrors and lights to bounce the light on the racetrack, but fixture is down on the ground level and that kind of thing it doesn't enter your line of sight so uh but it's it's the <laughs> the truth is it is the lights that wound up sending me to texas and i so i got to tell you the story about a, and mike may remember this it's 1992 and so about a month before uh the winston which was the all-star race back then we had an open practice so that the drivers and the teams could get the cars out on the track and see what it's like under the lights. And we all realized as we just, you know, kind of went about our, our lives that uh, everybody was interested in what we were doing. Everybody wanted to see these lights. 
So we decided, well, heck, we'll just open up the grandstands, tell people you can come watch practice. Now, practice is like watching grass grow. You know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not, not very much fun, but, but we opened up the grandstands, had no idea. And I want to say 65,000 people showed up. <laughs> I was probably one of them, dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unbelievable. And so just around dusk, uh, we uh, had the guys back in the shop build this big cabinet that had all these switches and dials and gauges and wires on it that looked like something from Frankenstein's lab. And we had it sitting down there by the flag stand on, on the grandstand side of the fence with a big cable out of the back of it. And so as the crowd counted three, two, one, Bruton Smith, you know, billionaire Bruton Smith is supposed to throw the switch to light the place up. Now, the truth is, is you turn the lights on around the racetrack about 30 different places. Uh, this cable just ran into a drain <laughs> down there. <laughs> <in front of laughs> the but, but it was, you know, we had TV stations from all over the country and, and, you know, photographers from all the various newspapers and wire services, and they're all gathered around. This is a good visual, which is what I was counting on. And and so Bruton throws a switch, and Pyro shoots up out of the box. It goes up 15, 20, 25 feet and kind of hovers, and it starts dropping, you know, 20, 15, 10, 5, and, oh, my God, Bruton's on fire. <laughs> uh, now, okay, so he... Here's this billionaire who has white hair, and he's jumping up and down and trying to put his head out and trying to put his his very, very, very expensive sport coat out and and so forth, and and the cameras are all gathered around him. They're getting all of this. And I'm sitting there with my mouth open because, well, anyway. This wasn't really part of the deal. This was happening real, like – or was it, this... it was a Michael Jackson Pepsi commercial kind of thing. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know Bruton except as uh, he knew I was the PR guy, and we would see each other, and you'd say hello, and that was the extent of we had never had a conversation. You know, I worked for Humpy. That's what he does. He has guys run his businesses, uh-huh. and you know, so so it's over, and I go up and I put my arm around him. And I told him, I'm sorry, we tried it earlier in the day, and it worked out great, blah, blah, blah. And he looked at me and said, son, I think you're taking that one hot night thing a little too far. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was classic right there. Oh, he's so quick. And so uh, with that, uh, he stepped through the fence to his car that was on the racetrack, and he took a lap around the racetrack. Remember this, took a lap around the track so he could enjoy the lights. And then he pulled off and drove himself to the hospital because he had third degree burns on top of his head. And so, did anybody next, know that it wasn't part of the act? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I didn't a- ask them, but I certainly knew. And I will <laughs> tell you this: I remember walking from uh, went through the gate as well and walked across the grass and pit road, and I was going to the infield media center. And as I'm walking through the the cup garage. Michael Waltrip is standing there, and he's probably 50 feet away from me. But he's in his yellow Pennzoil uniform, and he always looks like Big Bird to me in his big old yellow uniform. <laughs> he's so tall. And he, and I hear him scream, you set Bruton on fire. And he just laughed and laughed <laughs> and laughed. <laughs> and I'll never forgive him for that, never. for laughing at my misfortune. <laughs> but anyway, the next day. I go in the office and I go into Humpy and I said, okay, you know, 
I would fire me if I was him. Uh, he goes, don't worry about it. I said, well, no, no, no. I'm very worried about it. He said, look, he's got a great sense of humor. Make a joke about it. And so I got to thinking and I had my assistant run up to the store and buy a little kitchen fire extinguisher. And I wrote something about one hot night on it and sent it to his office, which is at town and country forward over on, uh, on, uh, uh, Independence Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, 10 minutes after they delivered it, my phone rings and my assistant says, Mr. Smith would like to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> see how this, this went over. <laughs> yeah, this is it. And so we're talking. He said, I thought the fire extinguisher was very cute, very funny. And uh, I, I know for years he had it on his credenza in his office. But, um, we talked and we talked and he said, listen, some friends of mine called me from Hawaii last night, concerned because they saw me on fire on the news over there. <laughs> he said, how did they get that clip? And I thought, oh God, I had hired a crew to send up a video thing from the infield with highlights of the night. I thought they would know well enough. You don't send up video of the billionaire on fire. <laughs> he owns the joint. And uh, so I explained that I had a, it sent up via video sent up from the infield via satellite. And I remember you said, okay, explain to me how you have a satellite in our infield. And I was like, no. So I, I'm trying to explain to him the uplink and how you do this. And, and he goes, so you're using satellites in space for motor racing? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, how much did that cost? And I'm thinking, oh, boy, he's going to get really ticked because I spent his money to embarrass him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I said, I remember the, I remember the number. And I said, uh, $600. He goes, that's it. I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, but who all got this? And I said, every TV station in America for $600. I said, yes, sir. He goes, you are the smartest man I have ever spoken to. <laughs> That's great. And from that point forward, Bruton thought I was a genius at promotion. And um, gosh, it wasn't. But, uh, you know, a few months later, and we, we became close friends and talked almost, well, we talked daily. Uh, and, and it was uh, just a few months later, he said, uh, go build a racetrack. And I said, who are you talking to? He said, you, go build a racetrack. And I said, where? He said, I don't know, somewhere west of the Mississippi. Figure it out. Click. And that was that. <laughs> wow. But had I not gotten to know him by setting him on fire and then making a joke about it all, I, I would have never gotten the opportunity at Texas. That's well, how did we settle on Fort Worth, Texas? Let's go to that story. <laughs> all right. So we, <laughs> Bruton and I, you know, he, 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 calls me and he says, you got something figured out? And I said, yes, sir. I'm thinking St. Louis. He said, great. Meet me at the airplane in the morning, eight o'clock at the hangar. And, okay. Yes, sir. Well, oh, and he also said, and don't tell Humpy you're doing this. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the PR job for Humpy Wheeler was uh, the most volatile job in the sport. Jack Arute held the job for six weeks. He couldn't handle it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, by I think three years was the record. Anybody had been able to stay with him, but most folks, six months or so, and they left. Oh, really? That, I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Back then it was. So uh, at this point, I held the world record 
I remember Tom Cotter, who had the record at three, called me that three years in. Apparently, he put it on his calendar, and he said, congratulations, you're the new world record holder. So, uh, But anyway, he said, don't tell Humpy. So I've got this tough job that I've been doing during the day and working on what became Texas at night, and I can't tell Humpy anything about it. And so I've got to, you know, come up with excuses of why I'm gone with Bruton. Uh, you know, I've got the flu or whatever, and and we're in St. Louis looking at property. And fortunately, now, you know, you may not appreciate this, Mike, because you're from there. <laughs> but but the, the Mississippi was had flooded everywhere. Everywhere we looked was underwater. And you can't hold a race underwater, obviously. Right. So, so that eliminated St. Louis for us. So then Bruton had a specific piece of property to, he wanted me to look at in Vegas. So I go to Vegas, and I'm working on figuring out, do they have, you know, water and sewer and power and, you know, roads and all the infrastructure to support bringing 100,000 people to town or, you know, at this piece of property. And so I'm at my desk at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and I get a call from a guy that uh, tells me that there's a guy that's already looking at that same piece of property. Now, this guy is is a boxing PR guy that I knew. I didn't tell him I was in Vegas. He had good enough contacts to find out. And so he said this guy, Ralph Engelstadt, uh, is probably further down the road on that same piece of property. So I called Bruton, and I was telling him, and he said, hey, I know Ralph Engelstadt. I said, do you? He said, yeah. He said, um, stand by. So he calls me about 10 minutes later and says, okay, we're not going to Vegas. Uh, it, you know, out of, out of courtesy to a friend, he didn't want to try and beat him to the punch. So he said, let's forget about Vegas. And so uh, we had a real estate guy, and he said, I would encourage you to look at Dallas, Fort Worth. And so we uh, came down here, and the real estate guy connected us with Rossboro Jr. And uh, we we landed at Rossboro Jr.'s airport, Alliance Airport, uh, got off of Bruton's airplane, and there's Ross with his helicopter. He says, jump in, fellas, I'm going to show you around. And he takes us on a tour of all this property he has here in Fort Worth, and you got headsets on, and if you speak, you know, Ross can hear you. And, of course, I don't want to say anything that would tip him off as to whether we like what we're seeing or not because you want to – you know, you want to have uh, that keep certain secrets in your negotiation. But I hit Bruton on his leg, and he looked at me, and I'm out. This is it. And Bruton nodded his head, yes. We both knew as soon as we saw the property, because it was 15, 20 minutes from uh, DFW Airport. It's you know less than five minutes from Alliance Airport, which is a giant private airport that Ross owns, and you know all the the flying. Air Force, which comes with NASCAR, could land there and be at the track in just minutes. Uh, it had highways on three sides. It had all the, you know, gas, water, sewer, uh, power, all those kind of things at the property edge so we could connect to all of that. It just uh, was the perfect fit. And so that's that. And Bruton said, uh, move to Texas and build a racetrack. 
Yeah. And, when, and when you guys opened up Texas Motor Speedway, that was a big deal. The first race that they ran there, that was I, a big deal. Let's, let's, take, a let's take a break. Let's take a break. Take a break and talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Hi, it's Jeff Kent. You need to get behind the wheel of a vehicle that's built tough with Mark Ficken Ford Lincoln. Right now, you can get $500 off any new or used vehicle that we have in stock. That's right, $500 off any vehicle currently in stock. To take advantage of this deal, simply visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com slash Wallace. Don't miss out on this opportunity to save big on our entire inventory. Get $500 off new or used cars, trucks, and SUVs at Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard now. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You are listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard. The team at Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln works hard every day to be a community partner in supporting their customers, local businesses, as well as being involved in local charities and programs. Visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com today for your next vehicle selection, service appointment, or collision need. We're about to bring it home with Eddie Gossage. And once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, I'm excited about Texas because I was uh, able to be at the first Texas race but Eddie and I'm sure you remember every bit of the uh, everything that you guys did but as a young guy driving in NASCAR it made me feel good because you invited you and you know all your people along with other drivers you invited us to go on a media tour Jeff they put us on a jet flew chartered a jet a big jet and we media members, drivers, crew flew to Texas Motor Speedway before it was opened. Oh, nice. You know, and kind of showed you around and what's going on. It's like somebody built this empire out in the middle of nowhere. The, the only thing that's there is an airport. See, the that's Alliance big airport. time PR right there, man. Yeah. And, and, and it anymore. made us feel good. I yeah. mean, I was a young guy and it's it's like, man, they invited me to go on this trip. I was really excited about it. So uh <laughs> I kind of got ahead of myself there a little bit. So you you and uh, Bruton and Ross Perot and all that make an agreement that you're going to build a racetrack. We did. And, you know, Ross uh, uh, wanted us to be there to kind of serve as an anchor for this giant development that he has. And, you know, when they say things are bigger in Texas, they don't joke around. You know, uh, this airport uh, in the surrounding area, has 1 million square foot warehouse and distribution centers uh, that serve the airport. The airport is a free port. Uh, so it, uh, you know, you can ship things in internationally and that's a tax thing. And so uh, it is amazing how many tens of thousands of people the Alliance development, uh, which is continues to grow, continues to be built out. Uh, but we serve as the Northern anchor of uh, the Alliance development. That's when Ross wanted us there because it brought, you know, international, exposure to what he was doing so so after you guys kind of i guess you say put the fundamentals together and the agreement together how does it go how do you decide what kind of racetrack and 
<laughs> you know, I mean, there's got to be this probably takes two hours to explain a, a part of it. But how? What, in a few brief minutes, how, how did you guys come about that? Well, I can remember sitting in some coffee shop somewhere and I, and I had so much time with Bruton that it was just, you know, he became um, really my closest friend. And I remember early on sitting there and I'm drawing something on a napkin. He says, what's that? I said, I want to throw an idea at you for what the racetrack ought to be. He goes, well, I know what the racetrack's going to be. I said, well, let me just show you what I'm thinking. He reaches across and grabs a napkin, and he kind of wads up, and he goes, I know what it's going to be. And I, I said, well, what's it going to be? He said, it's going to be mile and a half, quad oval, looks like Charlotte. I said, well, out of respect for Charlotte, you know, let's, why don't we let Charlotte be Charlotte? Why don't we let Texas be Texas? He goes, that's what I build, mile and a half, quad ovals, 24 degrees banking in the turns. And that was that, so, <laughs> you know. Oh, that so was the, that, that was the end of the discussion right there. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, yeah. I was waiting for some plot line to come out that something else. I'm thinking I know what it ended up. It was going to be, it was originally like going to have a lower banking, right? That the Indy cars were going to run the lower part of the racetrack, and then Cup cars yeah, were on the top or whatever. In the turns, we had what was called dual banking, 18 degrees down low, and then it went up to 24 degrees midway on up to the wall, and uh, the truth is, is the IndyCar guys didn't even want to try it, and I, I think that was a big mistake. Um, but, but you know, whatever. It's just one of those things. So let, let's move forward because we're going to run out of time. First race at Texas Motor Speedway. Tell us about it. Because <laughs> well, it was a story. <laughs> oh, Lord. So uh, on Thursday night, it starts raining. And by raining, I mean like biblical Noah art. Yes, yes. He's telling the truth. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, I remember we were doing a Speedway Children's Charities event at Billy Bob's with uh, Jerry Jeff Walker. And you could hear the rain on the roof over Jerry Jeff Walker and his band. So it was just coming down hard. So anyway, Texas, at least this part of Texas, is flat. And we truthfully had not gotten the parking lot finished yet. Ran out of time on that. And so by Friday morning, we've got, you know, 1,500 acres, but you can't park on it. So what are you going to do? And and I couldn't find Bruton. Uh, Humpy was allegedly there. <laughs> Ed Clark was there somewhere. Allegedly, huh? <laughs> Nobody was coming yeah. to your help on this one. <laughs> I, I was all by myself, you know, and I'm, I can't find any of them. And so I decided, okay. Got to go. And so uh, I got one other person uh, on our staff to join me, and we started putting together a park and ride system, renting buses, finding places to where you can park a lot of cars, and we could have buses running shuttles back and forth. And as it turned out, uh, we spent, oh, gosh, I'll get into that in a minute, but spent a lot of money renting buses because we were at your mercy. You know, if you were a, a school that had 10 buses or if you were a church that had one or if you were uh, the Dallas area rapid transit, I remember rented us a bunch of buses, you named the price, you know. And so uh, <laughs> we had to move. As it turned out, we moved 300,000 people on Saturday and Sunday combined. And I never really thought about it until Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans <laughs> 
and it took them, you know, how many weeks to move like 400,000 people. Uh, and we did it in, you know, put the whole thing together uh, in one day because we didn't have a choice. And so we, uh, we, we moved all these people from all these various locations, got them in, in their seats. And I uh, uh, do remember Bruton stuck his head in my door about 10 o'clock and said, hey, kid, what's going on? <laughs> are you kidding oh, oh I, I i'm yelling you know <laughs> where have you been blah 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 i said i have spent a half million dollars today renting buses he goes well can you do anything more to help our fans i said i'm doing everything i can he goes well you're doing the right thing he said i'll talk to you tomorrow <laughs> walk out the door <laughs> I never saw Humpy until Sunday. So, uh, you know, it's uh, so here I am, the you know new kid trying to do this and, and spending a half million dollars that nobody said was OK. But he he understood. He And I knew he would. And so uh, we wound up getting everybody in, surprisingly. And I remember uh, the helicopter got behind and failed to pick up the guy who's going to play the national anthem, uh, the maestro pianist Van Cliburn. And I, when they tell me Van Clarber is not going to make it, I about lose it. And Humpy grabs me by the shoulders. He said, turn around. I turned around. He said, look at those stands. Everybody's in their seat. And it's still an hour to the green flag. He said, you did it. Don't worry about the national anthem. And I had to, as it turned out, there was the guy that was on the house band at Billy Bob's was standing there. And I said, Sonny, you're doing the national anthem. He said, when? I said, five minutes. He said, I don't know the words. And I said, well, you better get busy. <laughs> and uh, he wound up writing out a quick outline and put it in his cowboy hat because when you sing the anthem, you take your hat off, right? Right, right. Oh, that's and so he cool. He held, held it right in front of him and sang the words out of the top of his hat. But, um, <laughs> you know, it just, just one of those things. And it was by no means... It was ugly, 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 uh, by no means. Uh, I mean, and then we, we have a crash in the first turn of the first lap because they didn't like the banking, and you can talk to that, Mike. But uh, to this day, I blame Daryl, um, and, and, you know, he was in the outside lane, and he wanted to be at the bottom, and, you know, there wasn't a hole there for him to go, but he tried to go there. And uh, so I blame Daryl, and Daryl, of course, blames me. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Well, but it was not a pretty sight. It wasn't uh, an artistic success, but we had a race, and Jeff Burton won his very first cup race. Yeah, well, you can say whatever you want to say, all right, Jeff? That It was an incredible event through some very, very adverse conditions, and it's the right. weather. And I tell all my friends this. I was uh, I drove for Ron Neal. I was driving the number 91 car, the Spam Hormel car. Mm -hmm. I finished 15th in the race. But the coolest thing is you got to go back and remember what they did. First of all, they give everybody in the driver's introduction a big belt buckle, a right. Texas-style belt buckle that had your name, your starting position on it in Texas Motor Speedway. So it was like the very first time I'm a young guy, still young to NASCAR, and I got this cool wearable trophy, you Absolutely. know? Then you, you find out more about what on, and it's the only racetrack that I've ever seen in my life that was capable of turning in a major interstate, I-35, out in front of the racetrack, into a parking lot. They just started parking them on the shoulder, and in uh, right. yeah, both sides there was a lane left, and I just thought, 
these guys got their shit together here. You know, they they <laughs> improvise. They know how to make it happen. So um, hey, Eddie, we're talking we're ta we're talking racing for the most part, but on June twenty first in nineteen ninety seven, were you there for that four hundred thousand people? At a, at a show called the Blockbuster Video Rock Fest at Texas Motor Speedway? <laughs> yes, I was. Worst day of my life. Oh, wow. Oh, my. Tell us about uh, this. Just a little bit about that, please. Well, uh, it was bigger than Woodstock in terms of the number of people in attendance. And, I, I, and I'll tell you, I think there's still some of them there. Um, <laughs> this thing went on for two days, and people were everywhere. And it didn't matter where you lived didn't matter what you were doing, they were there amongst you. Because what they would do is they'd stick around for a couple bands they liked, and then they'd leave for a while and come back later. So I learned a lesson, no pass outs. Right. Once you're in, you're in, and if you leave, you're, you're gone. Right. But, uh, you know, you can imagine, uh, Mike, the, the grandstands, which we had 155,000 seats. Therefore, the stage is on the back straightaway, the entire infield is full, shoulder to shoulder, the whole place. It's just the darndest thing I've ever seen, and uh, it it oof, it went on forever. Think about that, four hundred, and it was hot as hell, right? Oh yeah, it's you know it's <laughs> June twenty first, I think yeah, is what the date yeah, was. Right? Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, it's two hundred degrees, and you can't move. And so uh, I'm, I'm just telling you, these kids, they climbed on top of uh, concession stands and the garages and whatever gave them a better vantage point to see the stage. And the truth is they were in charge. They didn't know it. Yeah. But there were so many more of them than there were of us. So it was it was a wild experience. Um, Did you have the premonition it was going to be that big? No, 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 I had no idea. No, it was, it was a promotion done through Blockbuster, and you had to get your tickets at Blockbuster, and blah blah blah. But <clears throat> this thing, this thing had, you know, was still going on. It's supposed to end at eleven o'clock on Saturday night, and it's four in the morning, and the last band, uh, which I want to say was, um, mm, trying to remember. Okay, no doubt played with what's her name Gwen Stefani Gwen, Stef Gwen, Gwen Stefani. Stefani yeah because yep, I, I got my music expert next to me so you throw anything <laughs> yeah. I've got it covered here on this my end okay so her boyfriend was in the band at the time Bush. her boyfriend at the time was a uh, Bush oh, in Bush. Bush yeah thanks Rich yeah. okay yeah and so uh so Bush is about to wrap up and I'm on the front edge of the stage trying to end this thing, you know, and I see in the back roadies have drum kit and some and gear and stuff, and they're ready to go running and put in place stuff for yet another band. <laughs> so I go around the back side of the stage and I grab the guy that's, you know, the, the quote unquote, the promoter, he's the band guy. And I said, what's this? He said, well, this is a local band called the Nixons and they're going to play walkout music. And I said, no, they're not. He said, well, sure they are. I said, no, as long as there's somebody on this stage playing music, ain't nobody going anywhere, and we're done. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, you tell them that. He pointed to the crowd. And, and I said, no, they're not going. This band isn't going on. He goes, sure they are. Okay. All right. So I sit down on the case, and I call. We have always have a control tower, and I 
call the control tower. I said, send some cops back here to arrest me for something. Find <laughs> some reason to arrest me because they're trying to put another band on. I'm trying to end this thing. And, you know, our guy in the tower says, do you know what you're doing? I said, roughly. <laughs> you, know, I figured, I, you know, I've been I've been up for two days. Uh, I figured if nothing else, I'm going to sleep in a jail cell for a while. But um, so I look up five minutes later here. I mean, there's two dozen Fort Worth cops stomping across the back of the stage and they're ticked because they've been here for a day and a half too. And they've had it. And guy says, Mr. Gossett, you're under arrest, breaking ordinance, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, it's not my show. It's his. And I pointed at the guy, the, the, you know, the other promoter. And he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I don't need to go to jail today. And I stood up, put my hands behind my back. <laughs> and the cops didn't know what to do. So they said, we'll just take both of them. Okay. And he said, okay, hold it. Hold it. I can end this right now. You know, I can stay. And so the Nixons did not go on the concert. The festival was over and everybody got to go home. That is a so, great story, <laughs> man. <laughs> like I said, I figured the worst that could happen is I'm going to go sleep in a jail cell. So yeah. I'm glad we brought know. that up for you. Rockfest yeah. at Texas Motor Speedway. Rockfest Rock 97. 97. Televised live. One of the highlights of Eddie Gossage's career. Yeah. Hey, Televised start to finish on MTV. It's there crazy. you go. Can you stick around for a couple more minutes, Eddie, or you got to go? You bet. Okay, so we're still at Texas Motor Speedway because I'm intrigued by some of the things I I really want to get them out. You know, you you guys did some phenomenal promotions around the racetrack. You made the race car drivers feel really good, and I hope you know that, that they'd come by into the driver's motorhome lot, and they'd bring you uh, a basket telling you thank you for being here. You know, places didn't do that before. You know, you appreciated it. Then they go, hey, if you want a massage, you can go up into the— you know, the Speedway Club, we got a massage section up there. And, okay. man, I took them up on that deal. What some <laughs> great massages. So uh, good job, Eddie. But the one thing that you guys set the new standard on that, um, I don't know, you set the new standard on is that big-ass television. Big hoss. Oh, right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, well, first, I, I got to tell you, though, as far as going up to the Speedway Club to get a massage, your brother Rusty would always get a mani-pedi. Oh, always. really? Yes, sir. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> uh, I'll so, have, I'm going to bring that up to him the next time I see him. You tell him I said hey. So, uh, and what <laughs> about sure. that pink toenail polish they used to give oh you? My. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But Eddie, you guys did just <laughs> incredible things there. You you took you took a racetrack, and I, I'm, this is a compliment to you. So getting it out, you took a racetrack and you turned it into an event that had class to it. And it had now it had a little controversy. It was kind of cool, but uh, really beautiful facility. Wonderful people in the Texas area, uh, the Speedway Club, the gym, the everything that you get. It was just it was unbelievable. It was real. You guys were real trendsetters. You know, I mean, to today it's just expected, but back then it was it was totally cool. Well, Bruton believed in making it an event and wanted everything to be bigger and better and better and better every time you, you had a race. And so, you know, Big Hoss being the biggest television in the world, I'm sitting here looking at a certificate that uh, Guinness Book of World Records presented to me that it's the biggest TV in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, which which is kind of funny because around here, if you ask somebody who's got the biggest TV in the world, they'll tell you 
Jerry Jones, and I love the fact that it kills him to know that that's not even the biggest TV in town. So, <laughs> so I had always heard that that was. So it's not as big as the one at the Speedway. No, 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 no. Oh, wow. The, the, the one at uh, Jerry World is great. It, don't misunderstand. I certainly don't. I'm not poking fun at it. It's too big for the stadium, which is perfect for Jerry and his team and, and their their reputation. You know, it's perfect for them. It, it, but it's a little too big, and that's kind of cool. I mean, I was there Sunday for the Cowboys game, and, and you know, it's just – it's hard to look at because it's right in your face. Right. <laughs> but but if you put Big Hoss in there, uh, you couldn't play on the field because it would be touching the roof and touching the field. So, <laughs> Big Hoss. I Big like Hoss. that. <laughs> well, well, Eddie, we could probably talk for days. We always say that, you know, with our guests because it, it's get more and more fun. But I'd like to congratulate you on an incredible career uh, through the motorsports world and then through the racetrack promotions and all the things you've done for racers ourselves, along for race fans and racing in general, and anybody that can uh, beam it to the world for six hundred dollars is on my side, right? Yeah. Beam <laughs> well, it you're up, very Scotty. Kind, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you and Jeff having me on. I, I get to spend a little time with uh, your brother Kenny uh, on the Kyle Petty charity ride, and of course, we know Kenny brings enthusiasm with him everywhere he goes. It certainly so, does. Yeah, uh, riding a motorcycle, you can. You can kind of hear him coming uh, about a half mile behind you. <laughs> you can, it up you can and, certainly uh, hear him laugh, <laughs> yeah. I was just going to yeah. say. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we have a great time with Kenny. And, and um, you know, I've lived the most blessed life. Like I've said, you can't get here from there where I came from. But uh, I, I, my life has exceeded my dreams, and it's hard to – it's hard to imagine that, but it's been such a blast, and I'm having a great time still doing other things. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Eddie Gossage, there he goes. You've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speedsport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media.